I'm turning once again back, back to John 16, and I want to draw your attention to verse number 16. John 16, 16. I'm just going to read this verse again. A little while, and ye shall not see me. And again, a little while, and ye shall see me. Because I go to the Father. Our subject this evening is simply Christ's farewell to His disciples. Christ's farewell to His disciples. A simple title, but a, a very stirring chapter as we read through that chapter together. We are witnessing some of our Lord's final words to His disciples before He would go to the cross, before He would ultimately give His life on the cross, and be taken down from that cross after giving up the ghost, being placed in a borrowed tomb. And then, of course, we know the story that three days later he came forth from that grave. But some of the last words that our Lord gave us are some of the most tender words that he ever spoke. Uh, an interesting study I would uh, invite you to look at is look at the last, the last night or the last week of our Lord and find it chronologically and read what he was telling his disciples. Uh, he was telling them so many things, and there are so many things when we read them, we read them and we hear them and we say, I've heard that chapter before, and what a great truth that is to be reminded of. The disciples were completely unaware of much of what Jesus was saying. They were hearing him speak, but they were really not comprehending what he meant. We have this great privilege of looking now and having understanding because we've had the ability to read the Scripture, to hear probably a message or two on John 16, to read commentaries on John 16, to hear other people expound John 16, yet when He was speaking them, they were brand new words. And those words were so new to them that they were not fully comprehending what He was saying. Much of the time when we study the life of Jesus and His disciples and as they walked with Him for those years, uh, Jesus was unable to completely reveal and unveil everything to them because they were not capable of handling it uh, at the time. So every example, every time he would, he would be able to teach them, he would be showing them something that was preparing them for the next thing, uh, much like we do with children. Uh, we would never sit a child down, a, a child that's four or five years old, and I hope this isn't a crude illustration, and sit them down in front of and give them an algebra, algebra paper and say, figure this out. The child will have no idea what you're talking about. They won't even know where to start. Now, that's a crude illustration, but sometimes we lose sight of the fact that the disciples were pretty much in the dark about a lot of what he was talking about, especially with regard to his death. To them, it was unthinkable that Jesus was going to die. So in John 16, when he really begins to talk about going away, I want you to think for a minute what it must have been like for the disciples who all these conversations that they had had with him, he begins to talk about leaving them. This tender discourse that we'll, we'll entitle this tonight, he is talking to his disciples and John is the only evangelist of the Gospels that makes mention of this conversation. Matthew, Mark, and Luke do not have this account. John is the only one that makes mention of this these particular words that we find in John 16. The Lord's design throughout the entirety of John 16 
was to reconcile their minds to the reality of what was getting ready to take place. We might use in our modern vernacular to come to grips with, to come to terms with, to reconcile in their mind that this person, this man that we've walked so closely with, who has taught us and instructed us, we have to get this in our mind that he is going to leave us. Now, we know what it is to lose someone close to us. Everyone here has probably lost someone close to us, and many times it happens suddenly. It happens when we weren't aware of it. Someone didn't plan it. It just happens. But Jesus is planning. Within days, Jesus, all the events of what we think about on Resurrection Sunday will unfold. This is going to happen very quickly. This isn't like, man, I'm, I'm leaving in six months. Man, I'm leaving in a year. Man, I'm, I'm leaving in three years and two days. This is going to unfold very quickly. So throughout this entire address, this entire farewell address he gives to them, it's to reconcile their mind to the reality that he is going to depart. And what he doesn't do is he doesn't lie to them. Now that might seem obvious. He tells them, and we're not going to expound the whole chapter, but he tells them, I'm going away, and by the way, you are going to experience trouble. You are going to experience tribulation. You are not going to have an easy road. It is going to get difficult for you. But that great verse and that great promise that he gives him in verse 7, he says, nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is expedient for you that I go away. For if I go not away, notice what he says. He says, the comforter will not come unto you. If I don't go away, the spirit, the comforter will not come unto you. Not only will he not, he cannot come unto you until I go away. Again, he's starting this process of reconciling their mind to the reality of Jesus no longer being with them bodily. Though the intention of the Lord here is to not only reconcile their minds to his departure, but also to warn them and to equip them against future trouble. Again, the Lord's meaning of these things were not plain to them. They didn't fully understand it. We'll see later on, but even verse 27, he, he even this, this explanation as it comes to a conclusion, he, he says the reason for all of this, he says, for the Father Himself loveth you because ye have loved Me and have believed that I came out from God. That, that's pretty much where he's summarizing what's going on here. He's identifying the fact that His disciples love Him and He's telling them that the Father loves you. And you realize the beauty that's being expounded to them here. So what I want to look at this is really from two two angles tonight. First of all, we want to look at the subject of the farewell discourse or the farewell address to the disciples. Specifically, what He was talking to them about. It's important that we understand context. For example, when he says in verse number 2, they shall put you out of the synagogues. He's talking to the disciples. He's not talking to us right then. He's talking specifically, this is going to happen to you, and it did happen to them. He's talking to them, the disciples, specifically in part of this. Now, there are going to be the things that are going to be able to be applied to us, of course, But we notice here that part of the subject here begins with what we'll refer to as not maybe negative is not the right term, but a dark side of it. What's the dark side that Jesus is 
address is about? Well, again, back to verse 16. Ye shall not see me. Now, to the disciples, that is probably the worst news they could have imagined hearing. You will not see me anymore. It would be like someone we love coming to us and say, I will not see you and you will not see me again. Without context, that sounds like the worst thing you could have possibly been told. But then he quickly turns and he says, and again a little while, and ye shall see me because I go to the Father. There's a connection between them seeing him by going to the Father, but that if he doesn't go, that he, in order to go to the Father, they have to not see him. Again, we look at this and we say, well, this is plain. I understand this. The disciples didn't. They didn't have the privileges that we have to even study this passage tonight. Jesus is speaking these words. So the dark side of this is that you shall not see me. In the course of five or maybe six days at the most, from the time Jesus gives this farewell address, he's going to be taken from them and they would be left alone. As a matter of fact, he tells them, look at verse 20, Verily, verily, I say unto you that ye shall weep and lament. You know what Jesus is telling them? He's telling them, you are going to be sorrowful and you are going to be sad. And by the way, I don't think Jesus was saying, don't do this. I think he was telling them, weep and lament because I'm gone. But notice he says, while you're weeping and lamenting, the world will rejoice. You're going to be sorrowful that I'm gone, but the world is going to rejoice that I have been removed from the picture, or so they think. Right? Are we seeing the narrative here? Because now we're beginning to understand the perspective of the disciples was much different than the rest of the world. They were now being told, something that's going to be sorrowful to you is for your good and for my glory. The world is going to look at it as they've won. They have the victory. They have now destroyed this blasphemer, which is what Jesus is going to be accused. He said, weep and lament. The world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful. And then I love this phrase. And uh, this is one of those expressions that when you read it, you can never read it enough. He said, your sorrow shall be turned to joy. Now, what he doesn't say, he doesn't say that your sorrow may be turned to joy. Your, the actual sorrow you're experiencing will be turned to joy. He doesn't say your sorrow will stop. He says your actual sorrow becomes joy. Now that's something miraculous. That's something remarkable. He doesn't say joy is going to replace the sorrow. He says your sorrow is going to be your joy. Now that's a deep well. You know, when a person goes through a time of grief, that grief kind of changes and they leave the grieving stage in, in many ways. Sometimes it's still there. And it gets replaced by something else. But he says the actual sorrowful thing is going to be turned to the joyful thing. Again, let's not be too hard on the disciples why they don't understand this because you and I still struggle with the reality. How does my sorrow turn to actual joy? He further explains that they will weep and lament. And this they did do. Not only did they lose him bodily. Remember, it is said about the disciples, especially about John, they loved Jesus. 
this was not just an acquaintance. They loved him. And they didn't want to see him gone. But he's going to be taken from them. Their feelings, let's be real here. And again, these disciples were human beings like you and I are. These disciples would have had the same feelings that you and I would have had had we walked with Jesus that close and then he's gone one day. We would weep and lament and that's what these men were going to do. That's what our reaction would have been. We would have said, Lord. And yet, these feelings, although they were very, very real, they might have even gotten to the place where they began to wonder, was everything that Jesus told us, was it actually true? Now, we actually see some evidence of this, and we'll talk a little bit about this on Sunday, but even as we think about this, there is some evidence that the disciples began to question and ask, I wonder if what he told us about himself and about the Father was actually real. On the very resurrection day, if you'll turn over to Luke, look at Luke 24 and look at verse 21. Luke 24, verse 21. Now this is, this is after they have found the stone rolled away. All right, This is actually, it's begun to spread and, and get out into the communities that that tomb is empty. And if you look at verse 21, it says, But we trusted that it had been He which should have redeemed Israel. And beside all this, today is the third day since these things were done. Yea, and certain women also of our company made us astonished, which were early at the sepulcher. And when they found not his body, they came saying that they had also seen a vision of angels, which said that he was alive. And certain of them which were with us went into the sepulcher and found that even so as the women had said, but him they saw not. Now before we get the idea that they're in agreement, then they're believing everything they see. Notice the next verse. Then he said unto them. Now this is Jesus speaking to these disciples. Look what he says. O fools and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Ought not Christ to have suffered these things and to enter into his glory? And begin at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded unto them and all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. He starts over with these particular two disciples and he says, let's start it again and let's begin at Moses. Folks, it would have been realistic to think, had you and I been there, that we would have had the same response. That we would have said, was all that really true? Because everything they knew had been taken from them. Folks, we don't know what it is like to, to actually live and speak and talk with Jesus bodily. You and I do not have any perspective on that at all. Because you've never had a conversation with Jesus. In the sense where you're sitting with him at a table and you're having a conversation and he's teaching you and instructing you. We don't have that experience. But had we had that experience and suddenly he's gone, we would be completely lost as to where do we turn? What do we go to? Because our source of reference, the man that we've trusted, has left us. One of the things I love about the Gospels, especially when they speak about the disciples, is the humanity that the Word of God actually shows us the insight into these men. 
You know, oftentimes the Apostle Peter becomes a little bit of a joke because he's always the one. And we've all heard the Christian cliches, you know, Peter always put his foot in his mouth because he was always the one to jump ahead. You know what it tells us? It talks about, it tells us about his humanity. And it tells us that these men were not super Christians and superheroes. These men were battling the same emotions you and I were. They were crying. They were weeping. They were sad. I think it helps us identify with him. Think about if God had made all these heroes of the faith, quote unquote, these perfect Christians, we would have never been live up to that standard. They weren't perfect. They were human. And Jesus is telling them about all these things. They were sad. While this was the case, the world's triumphing. They are happy. They're rejoicing. Satan, no doubt, is rejoicing because he thinks that Christ has been crucified. And the world is mocking them at this point, asking the obvious question, where's your Messiah now? Where is this Messiah who you said was going to redeem Israel? Where is he? For those three days, he's completely off the scene. Nobody sees him because he's gone. The world's mocking them. Folks, not much different than what the world does now. There's an entire world out there mocking you for your faith. They're mocking you that you believe in what they'll call such foolery. You believe in a God who's not even here. You believe in some cosmic being, some mythological figure that's somewhere in the heavens. How much of a fool must you be? Do you know how difficult it was for the disciples after Jesus left them? We might say, how long did it take them before they ever got their feet back underneath them and began to understand what's actually going on in front of them? So that's the negative side of it. But the positive or the opposite of dark the light side of it, the bright side of this subject, is though the situation of the disciples is a sorrowful one, a painful one, Jesus says, it's only for a little while. I love that phrase, a little while. You realize the suffering that we're going through in this world? Comparatively speaking to eternity, everything you're dealing with right now is classified as a little while. There is nothing long-term in your life. Not when you compare it to eternity. If you live to be 105, it's still a little while. If we suffer for 100 years, it's still only a little while. Not that the suffering's not real. Jesus isn't hiding from this. He's telling them, you're going to have tribulation. You are actually going to be put out in the synagogues. And he actually gave a hint back in verse 2. And whosoever killeth you will think that he's doing God's service. He's hinting to them that you're actually, some of you are going to die. And what ultimately ends up happening with the disciples? They're all killed. But it's only for a little while. He's talking about they won't see him with their bodily, physical eyes anymore. But they're going to see him again. The bright part of this and the bright side of this, was he talking about when, when they see him at the resurrection? We know when he enters into that room and they, are witness, they witness his presence there. And we, we know the story of Thomas. We refer to him today. Even society uses the term doubting Thomas. Even the world uses a biblical thought 
Don't be a doubting Thomas. Well, what was Thomas doubting? He was doubting the reality of the death, the burial, the resurrection. This is Thomas. And the Lord doesn't rebuke him. He simply tells him, Thomas, put your finger in the prints in my hands. Put your finger in the, the place in my side. And then he turns and he says, blessed be those who don't get to do that and still believe. All of us who are believers tonight, that's what we are doing. We believe, although we've never seen him. I've never put my finger in the prints of his hands. And yet I believe. And Jesus himself says, blessed is he who believes not seeing him. So this is a very, although sorrowful time. In confirming what's going on here, in confirming this, the entire context of what Jesus is saying in John 16 agrees and speaks of the reality that what he was talking about when they'll see him again would not be with eyes of human eyes, but with eyes of understanding. Very similar to how God opens our eyes to make us believe the truths in which we believe. You don't believe these truths about the Lord because you're smarter than someone else or because you're intellectually wise. You believe these because God has given you eyes of understanding. The world may call you a fool, but you have understanding. These disciples, that's exactly what's going to happen to them. They're going to see and the picture is going to open up to them. Again, look at verse, now look at verse 21 and 22. He says, A woman, when she is in travail, hath sorrow because her hour is come. But as soon as she is delivered of the child, she remembereth no more the anguish for joy that a man is born into the world. And ye now therefore have sorrow, but I will see you again, and your heart shall rejoice, and your joy no man taketh from you. The joy that would follow Jesus going to the Father would be so great. This is what he's saying. Your joy about after I go to the Father is going to be so great, it's going to make you forget the sorrow you're going through right now. It's going to have that much of an impact on you. The enjoyment that you're being promised here, the enjoyment of what's happening here, this, this little band of disciples, this little group of people, he said, although you're like that woman in travail who's going through the pains of labor, she forgets the pain of the labor when she sees the child being delivered. The problem that the disciples were having, and this is the problem that you and I have, our attachments are fleshly attachments. We're attached fleshly. Our minds and our bodies, we think in human terms. Spiritual eyes of understanding look beyond the fleshly. They look beyond that and they see the spiritual. The disciples, as far as they were concerned, could not function if his body was not with them. Does everybody see that? He, they were attached to him, rightfully so. But if he's removed, then they must have nothing. Yet what he's telling them is if I go away, it's expedient for you that I go away because when I do, the comforter is going to come and he is going to speak of me. Their natural attachments to him were those things after the flesh and the joy he's talking about is spiritual joy. If you look over at 2 Corinthians chapter 5, the Apostle Paul makes mention of 
how we actually understand the things of God. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 16. And Paul in this particular chapter is, is talking about the earthly house. He's talking about this earthly tabernacle. And it's, it's, the, it's the chapter that talks about in verse number 8 of chapter 5 of 2 Corinthians. We are confident, I say, and willing rather to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. But in verse 16, he says, Wherefore, henceforth know we no man after the flesh. Yea, though we have known Christ after the flesh, yet now henceforth know we Him no more. Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. That word after the flesh means to only understand Him according to human standards. In other words, we've only known Christ from a worldly perspective. But when Christ is rejected and He's discarded as nothing important, that's when we'll fully understand. Folks, make no mistake about it. The world as a whole has rejected Christ and continues to reject Him. And we should expect it to continue. You should expect... Again, you say, boy, this is Wednesday night. You're going to encourage me with this. You should expect persecution. And if you're not teaching your family and you're not talking to each other about expecting persecution, you're doing a disservice to each other. It may not be in the sense of what we see in our lifetime. But Jesus himself told his disciples, listen, you are going to go through sorrow. You are going to weep. And he's not telling them, don't, don't cry. I want you to weep. I want you to lament. But I also want you to know that one day your sorrow is going to be turned into joy. A joy that's immeasurable and is not understood or comprehended by human standards. Folks, you realize one of our biggest faults is we only understand in human perspective in so many things. When something happens to us, we react in our humanity. When something bad happens, the first thing we react with is not spiritual eyes, but with our earthly eyes. So that when we receive news, much like the disciples would have received, we're going to react humanly. And we're going to think, because this human standard or this humanity is being ripped from me, I don't have any hope now. He's reminding them that they still have hope. The joy that would follow Christ going to the Father was so great they would forget these things. Really, in verses 23 through 27, 27, he's giving them the advantages, the benefits of him going to the Father. In other words, if he doesn't go to the Father, verses 23 through 27 don't happen. And let's look at them. Verse 23 says, And in that day you shall ask me nothing. Verily, verily, I say unto you, whatsoever ye shall ask the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Now remember, the whole purpose of this discourse is Jesus reconciling His disciples to the reality that although I'm gone, there are benefits of my going away. And one of those benefits are when you ask anything in my name, the Father will give it to you. Now he's not talking about the foolishness of a prosperity gospel here, folks. He's talking about this benefit of this access. 
He's talking about the benefit of God's will, God's purposes, God's plan. These are the things that are directly related to him leaving them and going to the Father. Folks, you realize what he's saying here. Then he says that anything you ask the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Hitherto have ye asked nothing in my name. Ask and ye shall receive that your joy may be full. He is telling his disciples, you have the permission to use my name in approaching the Father. Now, if we think that's a light thing for us, you know, every time we pray and every time you pray, when you pray to the Father in the name of the, of the, of the Savior, in the name of Christ, do you realize that privilege had to be granted to you? You didn't earn that. You don't deserve that. He's telling them, now you have this access to the Father and you can use my name to do it. When he was upon the earth, who did the disciples present their request to? They were to him. When they needed something, they just asked Jesus for it. Now he goes to the Father and now they are, he tells them, Whatever you ask, of the, you ask the Father, but you ask in my name. After his soul will have been offered as an offering for sin, after he goes to the cross, he dies, he's buried, he, he raises again, he ascends back to the Father. Our plea of access is the name of Jesus Christ. Without Christ, there's no access to the Father. He's talking to them about access. He's talking to them about now a benefit of me going to the Father is now you can approach the Father in my name. He goes on and he says, These things have I spoken unto you in Proverbs, but the time cometh when I shall no more speak unto you in Proverbs, but I shall show you plainly of the Father. Proverbs are just our sayings or expressions that are difficult to understand. And he's telling them with what's getting ready to happen to you, I'm not going to have to speak to you in Proverbs anymore. I'm going to speak plainly to you because now you're going to understand it. Remember, what's the basis of this entire conversation? They don't understand. They do not know what he means. And yet he says, there's coming a day when I don't have to speak. And notice what their response is. He says, at that day, you shall ask in my name and I say not unto you, that I will pray the Father for you. For the Father himself loveth you because ye have loved me and have believed that I came out from God. I came forth from the Father and am come into the world. Again, I leave the world and go to the Father. His disciples said unto him, Lo, now speakest thou plainly and speakest no proverb. It's like they request now, Lord, speak to us clearly. No more proverbs. And look at their response. Now, are we sure that thou knowest all things? At that point in time, the disciples are acknowledging, we're sure now what you tell us is true. And needest not that any man should ask thee, by this we believe that thou camest forth from God. Jesus answered them, do ye now believe? He tells them there is this day coming when you will fully understand what is happening and what is about to take place. 
This was meant to comfort them. He's reminding them of his intercession, how he is going to intercede for them. Even though he goes away, he will be their intercessor. Now the chapter goes on and he ends it with, at least to our minds, Jesus didn't speak in chapters. We all know that, right? He didn't get to the end of chapter 16 and says, chapter 16, check. Now, men, let's start chapter 17. This was a, con- a continual conversation. You know, sometimes we've got to remind ourselves of these things. Jesus is, is speaking here. He's not writing. He's speaking. And he says, behold, he's told him all these things. Here's what to expect. Here's what's going to happen. A little while, you're not going to see me. A little while later, you're going to see me again. Behold, the hour comes, yea, is now come, that ye shall be scattered, every man to his own, and shall leave me alone. And yet I am not alone, because the Father is with me. There's a little bit of a prophecy in here. He's not only saying they're going to be scattered because of persecution, but guess what? They're going to scatter because they are going to refuse to accept and acknowledge that they knew anything about him. Knowing all of that, and yet Jesus still tells them what he says in verse 33, these things have I spoken unto you that you might have peace. There's a lot of things that continue to amaze me about our Lord, but the fact that Jesus knew his disciples were not even a minute after he's taken. They were going to scatter like rats on a sinking ship. And when Peter is sitting there and they know him, they identify him, they say, we know who you are. And he says, I don't know anything about you. And that young girl says, we know who you are. And he curses at her and says, I don't know the man. Part of that scattering was because these men would scatter on their own. And yet Jesus says, I've told you these things that you might have peace. In the world, ye shall have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. What's he telling them? He's telling them exactly what they should expect. Even though the disciples, and I don't believe that the disciples did not believe in him, but because they were so afraid of that persecution, which I told you is coming. Folks, we have, we have, we're going to have to get this in our mind because I don't, I don't think... And pardon me here, but I don't think we fully understand this yet. We have this idea that we are so strong in our faith, and we have this idea that I'm a believer in Christ, that no matter what comes, I'm going to stand. And I'm telling you something right now. You are not going to really know what you're going to do until persecution comes, and then that's going to reveal. But that does not mean that you're not a believer just because fear of persecution drives you away. I've heard this preached for years that says the only people who truly are are the people that are going to stand. Listen, that persecution did come, and those disciples eventually, as they begin to understand more and more, they do come back. Peter's greatest ministry, Peter's greatest ministry happened after the resurrection. And that includes the preaching at Pentecost. Even even Peter preaching at Pentecost, he didn't fully, was not prepared for what Jesus was getting ready to do. Imagine that great sermon, 3,000 people are saved and they, and they, they come to know God. Peter at that time had no idea that Jesus himself really was going to die the way that it was going to happen. 
But this belief, this persecution, this fear, Jesus is basically telling them, he says, I'm not, he said, you'll leave me alone. You are going to leave me in my time of greatest need, humanly speaking. (laughs) But what does he say? I'm not alone. Folks, do you realize what Jesus is saying there? Do you know if every one of his followers deserted him, every one of his followers forsook him, he's still not alone. He and his father are one. Jesus' prayer in John, part of John 17 is, return me back to the glory I once had. There was nothing he wanted more than to go back to the right hand of the father. We get this idea that Jesus is holding everything together and he's dependent upon us holding it together. I hope you understand there is nothing in salvation that he's holding on you to keep because you're not going to be able to keep it. And the disciples in his time of greatest need, they fled. And yet we sit here arrogantly and boldly say, oh yeah, let let it come to me and I guarantee you I'm not fleeing. Folks, be careful what you're guaranteeing and vows you're making to God. I can point you across the pond. I can point you across the ocean and tell you about a lot of people who are suffering grand persecution right now. And I hope we don't have the audacity and the arrogance to say, I can't believe they're not standing for Christ. Because you and I do not know what this is yet. We don't know persecution for the name of Christ. Oh, we might know a little bit of persecution here and there, but we don't truly know what it is to say, you're going to die for this. You're going to die for your faith. Yet we understand that Jesus, although He tells them, it will be sorrowful that joy will come. Well, how do we apply this subject to ourselves? And we'll finish this by application. And I've already done this throughout this time. Although we can't expect the same thing the disciples went through, and I think it would be foolish for us to think that the thing, some things that Jesus spoke specifically about, it was intended for them. But we can expect a portion of our life to be marked by tribulation and to be marked by time of weeping and lamenting and times of sorrow. If a man gets up and tells you that the Christian life has no weeping, has no sorrow, and has no trouble, please get up and leave. Because you are sitting under the presence of a false teacher. Because he promises that the world is going to hate you because of me. A portion of our life will be this. There's also going to be times when the world is going to rejoice, when the cause of Christ seems to be failing, when the cause of Christ seems to be brought to ruin, when persecution is happening from within and from without in the church. I'm telling you folks, when the the world sees a church up in arms and a church that's fighting and a church that's in trouble and a church that's struggling. The world looks at that and says, ha ha, your God isn't so great. Look at you fools. You have this God you say is so great and you can't even get along. But you realize that the world, even when things appear to be going the wrong way, if you will, even when every Christian is weeping and mourning and grieving, we understand that it's only for a little while. 
That's the comfort we have tonight, folks, that whatever you're going through tonight and whatever you will go through, it's only a little while. It can't be too long. Even if you're not into statistics, statistically, a hundred is not likely for you. I'm I'm not trying to be ugly. But I'm trying to understand, folks, we have got to quit looking at human standards and saying, listen, this is everything. This life is not what you're supposed to be living for. You're supposed to be living for eternity. That's why our minds should be set on the things of God, the the spiritual understandings. And yet, we can take comfort in knowing That it's only for a little while. And I think there's one thing we don't understand about God. There are sorrows that we have experienced and sorrows that we will experience that God has already shortened the effect of them on us already and we didn't know it. You know, God has lessened some of the sorrow that you were going through and you didn't even know what He did. He took something sorrowful and turned it into joy. He says, you're going to have sorrow, but take comfort. It's only for a little while. There is coming a day when we live and we die, but we know that one day our sorrow will be turned into joy. We can live courageously and boldly knowing that one day every trouble that we have in this life will come to an end and will never, ever return. You understand everybody who has stepped out into eternity that's in Christ has absolutely no trouble. No sorrow. There is not weeping of hurt. The sorrow has been removed. They truly know what that sorrow has now turned because they have the ultimate joy of being in the presence with the Lord. Folks, that's the only way you can stand in a funeral home or in a church. That's the only way you can find any comfort is knowing that that loved one is in the presence of God. I've said this way too many times, I know, and some of you have been with me long enough to know. I've been at both types. I've been asked to preach both types. I've been asked to preach funerals for people who were clearly unbelievers. I've been asked to preach funerals for people who are clearly believers. And I will tell you, there is a tremendous difference. To be able to tell loved ones that you know that that person, that person had a profession of faith. Only God knows the heart, but they had a profession of faith. But I've done funerals for people who basically said they had no profession. I cannot give them any sort of hope that's real. I can't stand before a family with a person who never professed and has nothing to do with God and say they're in a better place. But to every believer in Christ, I can actually say that with 100% certainty that if your loved one knew Christ, repented of their sins, believed on Christ alone, that they are in fact in a better place and they would never come back here even if they were given the chance, not even coming back to see you. And I know that hurts our pride. There's nothing, humanly speaking, that the person who's in the presence of Christ comes back here for. They just don't. 
because they have now seen it. Can you imagine what the disciples must have experienced when they finally did step into eternity and they did see him again? We talk about reunions all the time when people who've gone on before, there's a reunion in heaven. Can you imagine what the disciples must have thought when they actually saw him again? Even though he showed himself to them in the resurrection, it was certainly something different when he stepped into heaven or when they stepped into heaven. Thirdly, and this goes back to verse 20. Verily, verily, I say unto you that ye shall weep and lament, but the world shall rejoice and ye shall be sorrowful, but your sorrow shall be turned into joy. Folks, I believe with everything that I am, it is our responsibility to believe the promises of God. Maybe the disciples didn't know how this was all going to happen. Maybe they were unsure of it all, but they were told, this is a promise of God, folks. Your sorrow will be turned to joy. We have to believe those promises of God. We have to believe what he tells us, even though we haven't seen it yet. We are required to believe. All of these advantages that the disciples were told about, about Christ going to the Father, they apply to us today. It is our responsibility to use the name of Christ the way we've been told to use his name. We're to pray for not only for ourselves, but we're to pray for other people. We're to pray for souls. We're to pray for our children. We're to pray for our grandchildren. We're to use that name. Jesus said, anything you ask, you can use my name. We are called, as Paul writes in the book of Ephesians, to walk worthy of our calling. To walk worthy of what God has called us to do. Think about praying and the privilege it is to pray. The Father always hears the prayer of His children that are offered in the name of His Son. There's not a prayer of the child of God that goes unheard. But I'd be remiss if I left without pointing us to one more passage. John 12, 35. I want you to see the opposite of all of this. And again, this may not be for anybody seated here tonight. But the same phrase is used a little while, but yet it is to the negative. Those who do not take seriously what he has said. Verse 35, John 12. Then Jesus said unto them, Yet a little while is the light with you. Walk while ye have the light, lest darkness come upon you. For he that walketh in darkness knoweth not whether he goeth. Notice this emphasis that Jesus keeps saying. While ye have light, believe in the light that ye may be the children of light. These things spake Jesus and departed and did hide himself from them. But though he had done so many miracles before them, yet they believed not on him. Kind of puts to bed the idea that someone says, if I just could have seen Jesus perform miracles, that automatically would lead to belief. It says right here that there were people that saw him perform miracle after miracle after miracle and still didn't believe on him. That the saying of Isaiah the prophet might be fulfilled, which he spake, Lord, who hath believed our report? And to whom hath the arm of the Lord been revealed? And I hope you've read this. I hope you've read this properly. 
When I first started understanding the doctrines of grace, this was one of the verses right here. Are you ready? Therefore, they could not believe. Not would not, could not believe. The light removed. Because Isaiah said, He, that's God, hath blinded their eyes and hardened their heart that they should not see with their eyes nor understand with their heart and be converted and I should heal them. These things said Isaiah when he saw his glory and spake of him. You will not always have the light. A little while, that light will be removed. If you do not know Christ, if you have not repented of your sins, if you've not believed on Christ, yes, on a Wednesday night, I implore you, I beg of you, I plead with you, repent of your sins and believe on Christ alone. Listen, I don't think we should ever preach the Bible, ever, without preaching the gospel at the same time. I don't care who the audience is, I think we always preach the gospel. A little while, your joy, your sorrow is going to be turned to joy if you're in Christ. But for those who are not in Christ, in a little while, you will no longer have the light. Repent of your sins and believe in Christ. Our Lord's farewell address to His disciples. I trust that it will instruct us and help us tonight. Let's finish by singing the hymn on page number 69. This hymn is not a new hymn, but it's been a hymn.